welcome to episode 150 of the Energy Talks podcast. Kind of a it's a, it's a landmark uh, episode for uh, for us, and it's going to be a very very interesting one. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop, and I'm going to be talking to the authors of the new book Anger and Angst: Jason Kennedy's Kennedy's Legacy and Alberta's Right. So I want to in, uh, welcome Trevor Harrison, who's a professor at the University of Lethbridge, and Ricardo Acuna, who is the executive director of Parkland Institute. Welcome to Energy Talks, gentlemen. Good Thank morning, Martin. Well, maybe we should start. I want to say that uh, your book is available from Black Rose Press at www.blackrosebooksalloneword.com for anybody who's interested in it. I would, this is a collection of essays. Uh, I'm familiar with many of the uh, many of the writers. They're the ones that I chapters that I read were lively and and, and very interesting. Maybe um, Ricardo, give us a kind of an overview of the book, if you would, please. I think the the, the book follows um, previous books that have been done um, by Trevor largely and, and in conjunction with the Parkland Institute. Uh, the first was published. Um, into the beginning of Ralph Klein's uh, premiership, and it was the Trojan horse. Um, and then as, as the Klein government progressed um, into the early 2000s, uh, Trevor uh, edited a book called The Return of the Trojan Horse. And the idea is always to look at these significant periods um, in Alberta governance. And uh, we decided three years ago, brought together a group of, of thought leaders and journalists and, and um, political analysts to discuss the idea of the Jason Kenney government being a significant one of those significant moments in Alberta's political history. And to start talking about ideally wanting to take a look at what were the key kind of policy pushes, what was driving policy during the government, how it related to Albertans, what impact it had, but also never losing that kind of historical context, the Alberta political history context of it. And, you know, leading up a little bit to, to what's next, what comes out of this. So we tried to capture all of that in, in the book. It's it's uh, it's a long book, but uh, we think we've succeeded in a lot of those areas. And for our uh, non-Canadian listeners, I mean, maybe uh, listeners from who are not that familiar with Alberta politics, um, we're talking about the Jason Kennedy government, the United Conservative Party government from 2019 to currently under El um Premier Danielle Smith, Jason Kenney was uh, removed as leader of the UCP in, last year, and uh, uh, Danielle Smith, former, I don't know how to describe Danielle Smith, uh, former radio host, um, former leader of the Wild Rose Party, which almost formed government in 2012, was headed that way until the so-called bozo eruptions around uh, that happened with some of her uh, more radical uh uh, candidates. But Trevor, one of the reasons we got into this discussion uh, to begin with is I approached you for a conversation about tribal politics in Alberta. And if there was such a thing as an oil and gas tribe. And the reason I asked that is because I had been interviewing Janet Brown, who's a well-known pollster, uh, very well respected, based in Calgary. And I did an interview with her in which she said, look, Albertans are oil and gas. 
They they identify so closely with the industry that when an attack on the industry happens, you know, like the tar sands campaign from 2009 to 2019, when that happens, they feel like they're being attacked. How do we get to the point where a political culture is so captured by one industry like this? Yeah, and I think actually following on what uh, Ricardo said, I, I think the the earlier two books that he mentioned uh, provide kind of a nice background, and then we followed that with this this current book. If you go back a few decades, uh, oil was certainly always important in Alberta, but what we've seen is oil becoming the dominant player. So in some sense, the uh, the tail ended up wagging the dog. And that's been a problem for the, the province. It's also been a problem for the Conservative Party. And so um, one of the things that we actually trace here is really the problems of what is conservatism. <laughs> like they, they have now ditched so many leaders in the last decade because the inevitable problems that have come about of a uh, single resource industry dominating the province um, keeps coming through and, and they're trying to find some way out of that. So that, that's the dilemma. As to the tribalism, it's absolutely true. There are a fairly significant portion of Albertans for whom there's a kind of triad of Alberta, oil, and conservatism, whatever that means. And it's very difficult to break that that kind of uh, triumvirate. I, I should point out that I, you know, I spent five years in the industry, sort of working in the in the field and all over North America. And I spent a couple of years regularly in uh, Texas. And the out of all the states that I was have uh, been in, Texas feels most like Alberta for that very reason. The, the identification with oil and gas. Now, it's not true that it's all over Texas, but certainly in West Texas, where I was and in Houston, uh, I, I felt the same way. And so this is not, I would say, not unique to Alberta, probably where the, you know, the oil industry is, it plays such a dominant role in, in the economy and particularly in employment. And it, it's hard to argue about why Albertans would be defensive uh, or why they would be fans of the oil and gas industry. Alberta's uh, per capita income is far higher than any other province in Canada. It's been, I mean, Alberta has been incredibly prosperous because of that. But here, the reason I'm interested in this is because, of course, we now are in a full-blown energy transition. And, you know, now Alberta has to start thinking about, and very quickly, it has to start thinking about how it's going to adapt itself to the energy transition. As electricity and low-carbon fuels push oil out of the market, the global markets, the problem is that the political culture, the institutions, the government, everything is so soaked with oil that there's a tremendous pushback and it i think in many ways it's impeding alberta's ability to just have the conversation about that we can't even talk about it because it immediately it gets into this tribal culture war mudslinging you know conspiracy theories and that have nothing to do with reality and it's not just amongst you know it's not just the the roughnecks and the the hippies down at the bar having a disagreement. I mean, this is right at the the, the very top. Uh, Kenny was Kenny's Kenny doesn't know oil from a hole in the ground. 
you know, he was an immigration minister when he was in Harper's cabinet. He was in the, the uh, Canadian Taxpayers Federation before that. He doesn't know. He's just repeating the narratives. He's bought into the narratives. He's bought into the culture. And that's what he did. But he he brought out that that fight back strategy where he picked, you know, picked fights with the, the federal government all the time. And it and it seems to me that 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 pugnacious kind of defense of the of the Alberta oil and gas culture played a big role in his government. Now, Ricardo, do you can you address that? Yeah, and I think it's beyond the, the defense of the culture, right? I mean, I think that 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 identification, the one thing that Texas doesn't have is that identification with oil gets weaponized repeatedly by leaders in Alberta and points of trouble. And they weaponize it as um, it's something that the federal government and environmentalists more, more recently want to kill, right? So they really weaponize that defense. And, and that's what we're seeing now. And it makes it completely impossible for the polit political leadership class. Like if you think in this province right now, both Danielle Smith and Rachel Notley kind of pushed back even against the idea of transition, right? The, the, the word transition. And, and that's because there's political points to be made by, by saying this, this is just another example of the federal government trying to, you know, attack our oil industry. And I think it's that weaponization that makes it really, really difficult for us to move forward because it's conceding in a battle. Almost right. It's like saying if we if we accept that there's a transition coming, we're we're conceding points in this battle, and we can't do that. You know, Trevor. Um, let's talk about Rachel Notley for a bit because this is fascinating. Um, I think Notley. You know, I interviewed Notley for my 2019 book, um, "The New Alberta Advantage: uh, Technology Policy and the Future of the Oil Sands," and I think it's fairly safe to say that you know from early on she was a defender of the. Uh, oil and gas industry, but not a vocal one. And I don't think she she bought into the 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 narratives and the the culture in the way that that Kenny and and Smith have. But nevertheless, when the when the the, the NDP came to power in 2015, she really didn't have an energy policy. She didn't really have a climate policy. But what she did was really smart. I mean, she appointed expert. Uh, uh, committees, you know, uh, Professor Andrew Leach, economist at the University of Alberta, he led the, the her, her climate policy commission, and and uh, Leach did a very good report, and the government accepted most of his recommendations, and then they had the uh, climate leadership plan in uh, late uh, 2015, and there was the energy diversification committee chaired by uh, uh, there were three chairs one of whom was uh, Gil McGowan at the Alberta Federation of Labor and and an uh, Indigenous leader and a, an industry leader. And and not as many recommendations were accepted, but that's been her her approach to energy is, I don't know much about it. I don't really want to talk about it. But, you know, when I'm in government, I'll rely on experts and follow and follow their advice. The problem is heading into the, the election in May, um, she doesn't still, and I, to be frank, I got blackballed by the NDP for a month because I had the temerity to say that she has no energy game. She can't talk energy. Their policies are little more than UCP light. And that didn't go over, that didn't go over real well, but, but it's kind of the truth. And she, there's, there's only a, a sliver of daylight between the UCP uh, energy policies and the, the Notley NDP energy policy. Now, would you agree or disagree with that argument? I think it's largely true. I think what we've seen in this province is that uh, both the main political parties have kind of outsourced 
the policy making around oil to the industry itself. Um, and, you know, it, it's a, oil and gas is a very complicated industry, as you know, uh, and the people who run it are extremely smart. So if you don't actually have people on the ground who can figure out their books, for one thing, then you are going to be left behind. Uh, to give kind of a historical referent here, one of the things back to the Lougheed days was the Lougheed government had a lot of really smart people who came out of that industry. And they could not be fooled in the way that uh, a lot of governments in Alberta have been fooled over the last number of years. So when you said earlier that uh, the UCP doesn't really have a, uh, a handle on energy or that Jason Kenney did not, no surprise, all they have to know is their political hides are dependent upon the oil and gas industry. So it's really a reflection of the fact that they know where the votes are, but otherwise in terms of the actual nuts and bolts of uh, how the industry will proceed, how to do something with it, they've outsourced it. Um, and, and that's really unfortunate for, uh, for Albertans uh, going down the road because we're gonna be caught in the whiplash of a changing energy market. Yeah, I, I would agree. And it was really interesting. I was reading the the chapter by Dr. Kevin Taft, who's written about Alberta being a petrostate. And his chapter is entitled, The Future is Past, A Political History of the UCP Energy Policy. And he, and he spends a lot of time actually on Ralph Klein's government, which I think was like 1996 or 1993 to 2007. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and he quoted uh, Klein's favorite aph aphorism, which is the politicians don't lead, they get they find a parade and get out in front of them. And so in some senses, you can see that because the parade in Alberta is clearly the oil and gas status quo, right? That's the current parade. But one of the things that if we accept Klein's argument, there is no alternative parade. Like I can you you, you folks are, you know, you plugged into Alberta politics like I am, I couldn't look around the the Alberta landscape and say, hey, here's another vision. Here's another view of, of Alberta energy that isn't, you know, Zipporah Berman shut down the oil sands in 10 years and let's walk away from it all. You know, there, there's no other parade for Rachel Notley to get in front of. And so it almost squeezes her into being, well, I'm, I'll just be better than, than the UCP. I'll do things quicker. I'll do things better. I'll do things more environmentally friendly. But essentially, my policies aren't that much much different. Uh, Ricardo, would you does that make does that take make sense to you? I mean, I think I think we know from from past polling and and uh, particularly the reaction to to the Notley Climate Plan in 2015. That I mean, there is interest out there and there's support for action on the climate and those kind of things. And what's happening is that there's there's a political dynamic that actually a few of the authors touch on happening in Alberta, which is Danielle Smith has identified that a key win for her to have in order to get elected is to bring back her disgruntled far right. So she has continued to move right. And while she's done that, Rachel Notley and NDP have identified this kind of homeless political center and have sought to move into that. And it's very difficult to move into that center, almost center right where folks identify so strongly with the interest while still speaking in those climate terms, right? In those transition terms. So what's happened is that there is that parade tends to happen from the center to the center left. And 
I don't know, maybe Notley has taken that group for granted or thinks they're secure enough while she courts the center uh, in on oil oil industry terms. And I think that dynamic is a critical one and lead up to the next election. Well, let's not your book isn't isn't about um, uh, Rachel Notley. So let's let's talk a little bit more about about uh, uh, Jason Kenny. Kenny has was a fascinating political figure to me uh, because I inter I mean I know he you know he's part was came out of the Reform Party. He's a very rabid conservative, uh, and when I I interviewed him a few times when we started up our first online news uh, uh, business in uh, Calgary in two thousand and eight, he's very charming, very smart guy. You know, he's he's got. Uh, a lot of information and a lot, you know, he's well-read. So he, you know, he's quite capable of putting together arguments. But it seemed to me that he tapped into, and I wrote a couple of columns about this uh, early on in 2018, 2019, he was tapped into that Trumpian policy, uh, populism. And I wonder, Trevor, what role did what Frank Graves, the Ecos research pollster calls authoritarian populism, what role that played in the uh, under Jason Kenney's premiership? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that uh, Kenney played to a lot of, and hence the title of our book, Anger and Angst. Uh, and this has been a kind of a very familiar um, appeal that right-wing governments have been making, not just in Canada, but North America and actually in Europe as well. And underneath that is are more than a few hints of authoritarianism. Uh, you know, it's interesting how the uh, Kenny and the UCP sort of would play on the one hand that they're supporting particular their tribe, their group, but going after others uh, in a fairly authoritarian way. And I think, you know, if anything, what we're seeing is a march more steadily to the right that way. We've talked about Ralph Klein a little bit here. Maybe this is a good place to jump off a little bit too. Ralph Klein was not ideological. Uh, and again, back to your quote about, you know, leaders following. Uh, so he would change on a dime. Uh, Jason Kenney also uh, is ideological, but he's smart enough to know how far the limits are. Now we actually have in Daniel Smith, someone who's extremely ideological. And in terms of tribal politics and a fairly strong authoritarian tinge, uh, should the UCP win in May, uh, I think there's a lot of us thinking how much farther right uh, and how much more authoritarian this government is going to be. Because we've already seen it in a whole series of other areas, education, healthcare, social policies generally. Well, Trevor, I'm going to follow up for you because... You know, in the years that I lived in Calgary, which is uh, 2000 to 2010, uh, Calgary struck me as a actually a very moderate kind of politically, you know, most of the people I met uh, were not this kind of hard bitten conservative that is the, you know, the image uh, of, you know, the meme of, of Calgary. A and um, w one of the things that did become clear because I met some of the more notorious social conservatives, you know, that rooted in the uh, evangelical Christianity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I interviewed Pastor Kevin uh, Powell from the First Lutheran Church here, and, and Dr. Kevin Powell, uh, I should say, uh, and and he was talking about Christofascism, in you know, in uh, 
Alberta politics and how he runs into it in Calgary. And it seems to me that under Klein, under Stelmack, and under Redford, that big tent PC party was able to keep that social conservative rump in check. They always popped up every once in a while, like a Craig Chandler in 2008 would be a problem for Stelmack, and they tamp it down again. But they managed, they managed to, well, they managed that, the politics of that. And then after Notley, uh, Jason Kenney mined it. He farmed it. He cultivated it. That was where he went to for his, that was his, his the core, that would be his base, in my opinion. Only we know from Trump and we know from other examples across Canada that that's a pretty unruly uh, group. And it seems like now that rump is bigger and it's driving the bus under Smith. Is that a fair take on things? Well, I would suggest actually that break came a little bit earlier. In fact, 2012, when Daniel Smith's Wild Rose Party almost looked like they were being government, that was very much a party driven by the social conservatives. And those have continued on into the UCP. But one of the things that uh, we've talked about in the book is that Alberta is a really complex place. It's, it's hard to describe it, even though the voting pattern is likely to end up kind of divided. Certainly within the conservative bloc and even within the NDP, there are a lot of different groups within that. One of the big changes in conservatism in Alberta over time is there is that social conservative rump still, but there's a lot of libertarians who don't actually sit all that well with kind of the authoritarian social conservative types. And uh, back to a point that, that you were mentioning earlier, if there are some real differences between these two parties. So if we actually look beyond energy, um, so they've we've agreed that to a large extent, there's not a lot of differences. But where the fights that you see are going on is along the margins of that. And so the issues of social conservatism, uh, you know, morality, et cetera, et cetera. So there are places where each of the parties are trying to find where the voters are. And that's where Calgary comes in, because I think most people agree that the election is going to be fought and won in Calgary. What happens there? And Calgarians are a pretty mixed bag out there, as you've pointed out. There's people wedded to the oil and gas industry, but a lot of them are actually pretty liberal-minded and even libertarian. Where do they want to put their votes? Yeah, one of the things I will say about, about Calgary is that, you know, regardless of whether you're a, a big supporter or, you know, in, in, in Twitter parlance, are you an oil bro? But even if you're not an oil bro, uh, the fact is, a lot of people in Calgary understand that their personal financial boat ro rises and falls with the, the tides of the oil and gas industry. So in Calgary in particular, and I, and, and I think this is, in my opinion, experience, more so in Calgary than Edmonton, in Calgary, people, you have to have an economic message. Like you have to be able to say something to voters that, you know, we're going to create jobs in the oil and gas industry or we're going to diversify based and here's our plan. You you, And this is why I, I criticize Rachel Notley for not talking energy. You can't go to the epicenter of the Canadian oil and gas industry and not talk energy. You, and and the, the voters expect you to talk energy. That's just 
it's it's part of the political culture and and she doesn't and she doesn't do it well she's not comfortable with it so she sticks more to the you know health and education and 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 social kinds of issues that she is far more comfortable with and i think that's a, a real problem but it also opens up space political space for danielle smith to improve her her fortunes in calgary now ricardo would you agree with that yeah, I, I think so. And I think the, the, the challenge there, too, is that, that Danielle Smith is not doing a great job of it, right? I mean, she's not she's not really presenting uh, an, an articulate vision of even what a pro-energy economy can look like or a pro-Calgary economy can look like for Alberta going forward, right? I mean, it's very much stuck in the, we need to invest in our oil and gas, we need to invest in our oil and gas, we need to invest in our oil and gas. And that lack of acknowledgement of transition or change or needing to move forward in some new way is also not there. And I think as a default, yes, that's got that group of folks who backed her in 2007, 2008, after the royalty review, when we first start seeing her coming into politics, that group of folks is still there with the oil and gas. But the larger group, the kind of the kind of big energy companies that were on the stage with Rachel Notley in 2015 when the climate plan was announced, the ones that worked with Sapora Berman to write the climate plan, um, those folks are going to be a little wary of that, right? And I think that is ultimately that's what Notley's seeking. That's the battleground, I think, is those folks. And I don't think either one of them is doing a great job of capturing them. Well, Trevor, here's a question for you. Um uh, uh, last year, I, I moderated a panel for a, a, a group out of Ontario, actually. It's a, you know, one of these, uh, uh, I don't know what to call them, but, they, you know, they, they're like a club that organizes around, they get speakers in to, you know, talk about the various issues. And they were doing, we were doing a virtual one. So I moderated a panel and, and it had, it had uh, Danielle Smith and Dave Collier, the former CAP president, and it had Max Fawcett, the lead columnist for National Observer. And so I got a chance to talk to uh, to, to Smith again, and and the thing that struck me about her is that she has, I mean, I know where her narratives were coming from. As she was talking about them, I could say, oh, okay, that could, there's like a cap press release for that, and then there's a cap press release for that, and I've seen CEOs talking about it exactly that way. But what they've done is they've constructed a very clever narrative where it kind of sort of acknowledges the energy transition, but it says, you know what? This is not, in the words of, of Sonova CEO, Alex Porbey, this is not a transition. It's a diversification of energy. And so oil and gas, we're going to be using oil and gas for decades. And we're going to be using this, you know, as much as we are now, pretty much, you know, for 2050 or well after, but we need other sources of energy. So we need hydrogen. You know, well, we're and we're going to make hydrogen not a natural mm -hmm. gas. So, what basically it's another market for the natural gas producers who are her supporters, right? But she cloaks it in this kind of you know feel good sort of got the I got the vibe. You know, I, I can talk about energy transition. I like hydrogen. I like cap carbon capture and storage, and and she's she makes you think that in fact she's kind of plugged into the energy transition. You know, she's kind of on, on board with it, when in fact, if you look just a little bit beneath the surface, those standard industry narratives, they've been talking about them since 2018, and, and really, this nothing has changed. So would you, what's your opinion of Danielle Smith's ability to pick up uh, sort of 
the next generation of Jason Kenny, a little more plugged in, a little more, got a little bit of a narrative here and ability to sell that to Calgarians. Well, the one thing Daniel Smith has going for her is uh, she comes out of media. She sells herself really well. And actually, as we say in our book, her greatest ability seems to be to convince other people of her abilities. Uh, but I don't think she actually understands oil and gas. And again, a lot of the people in the major parties don't. Uh, and so the major players can run rings around uh, you know, these political leaders. One of the things that, again, we've tried to emphasize in the book that Alberta is not static. There are changes going on, and there's some big changes here between very big oil, who even more so used to dominate during the decline years. The amounts of money they used to flow to the Conservative Party was phenomenal. The changes around that made some changes as well. Plus, big oil knows they've read what's going on, and a lot of them have been shifting money out of Alberta into more lucrative markets. A lot of the, the fear and anxiety in Alberta in the oil industry is really in the small caps and in the uh, industry suppliers. That's where out in some of the rural areas, UCP gets a lot of support from. And I think Daniel Smith is very well attuned to those people. Her understanding of oil and gas is kind of at that level. The people who are actually in terms of big oil, they have as usual visions that go way beyond what Daniel Smith or other political leaders have. The problem here is that again, we've outsourced the development of that industry to industry itself. <laughs> we, haven't, we haven't taken control of it to say, we want this industry to work for Alberta. Um, and I'm afraid the political parties are going to be content with that outsourcing. I have another question for you, and this gets to uh, uh, this concerns Jason Kenney's style. And you had mentioned that Danielle Smith comes out of the media. I mean, seven or eight years were as a talk show radio host, you know, you get pretty glib and you get to be, you know, I mean, sp talk speaking on your feet uh, and being charming like that is uh, is not a common skill. And and she does it. She does it pretty well. But let's talk about Jason Kenney. Because I thought, you know, Jason Kenney had a certain charm, as I mentioned earlier. And, but it's almost, I'm certainly by the end of his premiership, I mean, he was almost obnoxious. You know, people would, you know, they would watch his press conferences and, and talk about, uh, you know, how, what a snarky, uh, you know, things he said to the, you know, reporters who were asking him tough questions. And, and, you know, he'd look down his nose at them and he was not a, he was not a warm, sympathetic figure by the time he left the premier's job. And I, frankly, I wondered if he maybe just hit a ceiling that, that he just wasn't, you know, really at the end of the day, cut out to be premier material. I, what's your, what, what do you think, Trevor? The, there's a big difference between provincial and federal politics and people moving from one to the other historically have not been very successful. Uh, you know, people who have been premiers and then tried to become federal leaders, never been one yet that was successful. And uh, so being imported into Alberta to save the Conservative Party, much like Jim Prentice before him, actually, he never came across to a lot of Albertans as authentically Albertan. And if there's one word that kind of dominates uh, political discourse today in terms of selling people, it's authenticity. 
And uh, Jason Kenny driving around in an F-150, it just never seemed very real. Gotcha. Actually, the big blue truck was a Dodge Ram, just to, to clarify that <laughs> point, because I know there are listeners who are going to pick up on that uh, on that point. Um, Got to get those ads in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what what else can we say? Like I, I remember interviewing Professor Dwayne Bratt, who's a political scientist at Mount Royal University. You gentlemen know, know Dwayne fairly well. And we were we were talking about uh, I was interviewing him about uh, Kenny's COVID policies. And he made the point that the Kenny government, the UCP government under Kenny, was probably the most incompetent government in the history of Alberta. And he mentioned some examples. He would say, you know, they would they would uh, come up with an idea and, you know, for uh, a change in COVID policy, they'd leave it to the absolute last minute. The bureaucrats would, would burn the midnight oil to get the public health order written, and then they'd be full of grammatical errors and spelling errors. And, you know, they were poorly thought through and, you know, nobody could figure out what they actually were intended for. I mean, and this was repeated over and over and over again in various issues, various departments, curriculum review in, in education. And it just, this was not a very well governed governed. And and so Ricardo, what's your take on the, the UCP under Kenny in terms of governance competence? Well, and it speaks it speaks to that piece that, that we were just discussing in terms of, of what his failure was, right? Um, in many ways, Kenny was unable to transition from being a spokesperson for an advocacy group to being a government leader, right? And as a spokesperson for an advocacy group, all you have to do is repeat your message enough and be really angry about it. And that's enough to bring people along. As a premier, it doesn't work that way. He also surrounded himself, people with a similar skill set of this repetitive, loud advocacy stuff that never had to actually fine-tune policy, that never actually had to sell policy to, to an audience, right? And I think that that's reflected particularly during COVID when he had to begin acting against his ideological instincts and did not know how to do that. And I think the people around him did not know how to do that either. And that's where that scramble happened. Trevor, I got a question for you, and and this is something that um, uh, we've seen. Like all of us here in this conversation are old enough to remember how politics were done back in the day, right? I mean, you would talk about you would have public debates around policy, and and you know one party would have one position, the other party would have, and sometimes the the discussions got heated and maybe even a little rude, but nevertheless, the 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 rules of the game uh, were reasonably well known and and. But he, now, we don't talk about policy. We, what we talk about is we'd say basically a culture war. It's like the the the, G, the Republicans, the GOP in the uh, in the U.S. has started under Gingrich in in '93. You know, you don't talk policy. You talk about you know the other leader and what a horrible communist he is and and how he's trying to destroy the industry and and, and those sorts of hot buttons. Uh, what are what you're trying to, you know, you're fighting for political support, you're fighting for votes and polling points, and and you're doing it that way. Like, I, I get, could we, could the three of us come up with one policy that conservative, uh, federal conservative leader, uh, Pierre Poliev is pushing? I can't. 
I doubt if, if if you if anybody can. It's all about this this culture war, and Danielle Smith seems to be squarely in that tradition. But certainly Kenny was, certainly Kenny was. And what's your take on that? Is is Kenny? Have I pegged Kenny correctly? Well, I think it's true. The uh, but this is something that's been going on now in politics for the last twenty years, and and how we break out of that. Certainly, uh, obviously, social media changes in the media landscape have had a lot to do with that. But what we see then is again uh, fear and anger, right? So you uh, you go after certain voters and you make them afraid. You make them very angry about this boogeyman that is out there. And then you offer, on the other hand, that we will protect you. Well, we'll be the ones who have the answers. So you don't have to be afraid if you vote for us. But if you vote for those other guys, then you're in real trouble. And it's been very successful, particularly for uh, right-wing parties, uh, governments over the last number of years. Occasionally, the left will engage in it. But I think it's primarily a, a right-wing phenomenon. And... Uh, it would be nice to think we could get back to some kind of level of uh, civil discourse, but you're absolutely right. What we see now is opposition parties that don't really offer anything, pre, you know, is prescriptive. It's always kind of, uh, you guys are really bad and, and you're going to destroy us if people stick with you. Uh, this is very dangerous. And if you actually follow some of the uh, soul destroying comments at the bottom of various stories, you'll realize that we're in a dangerous spot here. I'm, I'm afraid of some real violence. We started actually this interview today talking about how really nasty this uh, coming election could be. Indeed. Uh, Ricardo, um, question for you. One of, I, I've done some interviews with David Coletto from Abacus Data, and he talks about how the, uh, the conservative parties in Canada uh, are appealing to voters, and this is particularly true of conservatives, but not exclusively true. There are progressives who feel this way, but they're anxious. It's economic and financial anxiety. And as a reporter who does a lot of work on the energy transition, I mean, it's really clear that we're in a period of very intense disruption, not just of the energy system itself, but now we're disrupting uh, industry and economies, because, you know, if we're going to switch to clean energy uh, or low emission energy, you know, like wind and solar and batteries and electric vehicles and heat pumps and all, you have to manufacture all of those things. And so the very basis of industry is changing and jobs are disappearing and jobs are changing. And, and people now wonder, you know, am I going to have a job? Uh, am I going to be able to, you know, put food on the table and and pay the mortgage and support my family? those sorts of things. And conservatives are, are particularly anxious about that. Trump tapped into that uh, anxiety, uh, you know, in 2015, 2016. And now it's, it seems to be what's happening here. And, and certainly, so I guess the, the extent is, what I'm going to ask is, how much does this dis global disruption translated into Alberta explain the anxiety of Alberta voters that Kenny tapped into in 2019? I think very significantly, right? I mean, we saw um, after 2015 and the, and the oil price crashed, 
we really see a lot of people starting to think that that was it. Like we'd, we'd seen the best of our oil, that those jobs, and we still, we're still seeing analyses that says most of those jobs aren't coming back, right? So we start to see that and that anxiety starts to build. And, and that's when it becomes very easy for Kenny to start pointing at other folks and pointing at uh, Canadian environmental groups, pointing at Trudeau, pointing at Notley saying, they're contributing to this, they're making this happen. And I've got the answers. And yeah, that that helps rally those voices down, right? We're actually seeing something similar today. You mentioned progressives do it as well. Maybe not to the same degree, but there's incredible anxiety about the state of our healthcare system, the state of our education system. And we're seeing the NDP's ads and, and promotions pre-election start to try and tap into them at some of that anxiety as well to pull people back, right? Well, gentlemen... I'm going to ask a question. I'd, I'd like to, the both of you to take turns, and Ricardo, we'll, we'll start with you. To what extent does Kenny's three-plus years as, as premier and set the, the, the table for this coming election and, and the years beyond? This seems to me that 2023 is a turning point and are we going to see the anger and the angst that kenny farmed from 2019 to 2023 continue or is this a point are we at a point where maybe alberta pivots and says okay look we, we need a different set, set of politics different set of policies going forward because the world is changing and if it doesn't if we don't change, we're going to be in big trouble. What's what's your take on that? Uh, it's interesting because Trevor and I co-wrote the conclusion to the book and and very explicitly say we're not going to make any predictions about what this looks like going forward. It, and it really is. It'll be how this election plays out and and um, not just the result of it, but the actual way that it plays out in the debates and the arguments play out that I think will determine how we move forward. Uh, Jared Wesley at the U of A has done some tremendous work looking at the fact that it's not Albertans when you talk to them who are polarized, it's the parties that are trying to polarize Albertans. And this election, I think, will determine whether they succeed or not. Um, there's an opportunity here for the electorate to kind of elect, a, uh, to kind of say to these folks, you know what, we expect you to work together and hammer these things out and come up with good policy. And there's an opportunity here for the electorate to just completely uh, turn the electoral system on its head and elect a legislature that's going to be extremely on one side or extremely on the other of these equations. And I think, um, you know, we're we're under three months away and the debates are, are really polarized at this point in time. Uh, and people's patience, I can start to see, is starting to wane with that polarization. So maybe there is hope for improvement going forward after this election. Trevor, um, what's your take on that? One of the tragedies, of course, of Alberta and Canada generally is we don't have a system of proportional representation. So there's a lot of uh, Albertans out there that are likely either not to vote or and par partly because they're going to feel their votes are lost anyway for some kind of alternative. So as Ricardo said, there's a there's a good chance that we'll see the legislature really polarized. One can hope that the people who are actually elected are less fire breathing and and perhaps willing to reach across the aisle to in the, the subsequent government 
to kind of find some accommodation and lessen the amount of uh, anger uh, and fear that is out there. But otherwise, uh, this this election could be just the prelude to more anger and fear because Alberta is going through a real change here, and it's it's understandable that the the fear that a lot of people feel, and it's really on the political leaderships to find a way to help people through that fear and not raise it to new levels. And uh, we will see. It's uh, as Ricardo says, less than three months away, and it's going to be a an interesting election in the way that we always say uh, we live in interesting times. Indeed, the Chinese curse. Well, look, I'm going to wrap it up this way. Um, if there's one thing that I've tried to do in my journalism, it's to, because about half of my interview expert interviews, I do about four or 500 a year, and about half are, are Canadian uh, focus and the other half are very often international, lots of American, European, and some uh, uh, Asia Pacific experts. And the, the one thing that I'm pretty convinced of is that the pace of transition at the global level outside of Canada is proceeding at a rate that Canadians have no clue. It is changing so literally the structure of our economy, the structure of our energy markets are being transformed in internet time, as we used to say. And Albertans seem to think that there's some way that by electing uh, the right government or the wrong government, whatever, uh, that somehow they can they have an option. They, they can opt out of or slow down or to have some control over that process. And it's an old axiom uh, in the Alberta energy industry that Alberta is an energy take a price taker, not a price maker, mm -hmm. and and meaning that it will take the prices it's, it's offered to it, not that it has you know it's not OPEC it doesn't influence the market and set the price, and so whatever uh, whatever direction the the energy the global energy system moves in terms of clean energy and all its technologies around it and the industry that that supports it alberta can can best it can surf it but it can't it control the the waves that it just can't do that and that is not well understood that is not well understood uh and i and so i worry that albertans are you know they're they're voting as if they're really it's a 2013 kind of economy mm -hmm. and on those principles and so that's one of the reasons why I was very interested in your book, because Jason Kenney, if if one part of his legacy is that he worked very hard to to uh, to uh, build that or promulgate that that kind of view, you know, almost like managing or, or uh, governing from the rearview mirror. I think that's part of his legacy. So, gentlemen, thank you very much. Good luck on your on your book sales. Thank, thank you, Martin. Have a great day.